Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Diego Majorano. I am a research fellow here at the Institute. I am very happy to have with us today Professor Kathleen Adney and Dr. Filippo Boni for this episode that is dedicated to one of the most important and um, consequential issues of um, this first part of the 21st century. Uh, which is the massive, massive infra infrastructural and investment project uh, promoted by China, known as the Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, let me just briefly introduce uh, our two guests. Uh, Professor Hadney is um, director of uh, the Asia Research Institute at the University of Nottingham and professor at the School of Politics and International Relations uh, at the same institution. Dr. Bonin is lecturer at the Open University and research fellow at uh, Redefine, which is a big uh, EU grant uh, looking at China's rise and its implications for global development. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Filippo. And thanks a lot for joining us. So the main reason why uh, we invited our guests today is because they wrote um, a very interesting paper titled How Pakistan and China Negotiate which is part of a series of papers published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is focused on understanding the global, but also the local impact that uh, the rise of China is having uh, uh, on the world. And uh, the paper that we discussed today uh, with our two guests does exactly that, by, look, by looking at how the global initiative, um, like the Belt and Road Initiative, plays out in the local context of Pakistan. So let me stop here um, because I'm 100% sure that our two guests and authors of the paper can do a much better job that I can at explaining what the paper is about. So Katrin, um, can you please, please tell us what the paper is about, what kind of question it seeks to answer, and perhaps if you can um, conclude with a one sentence takeaway of your main argument, uh, that we will all remember, it would be great. Catherine, to you. Thank you, Diego. It's a, a pleasure uh, to be here. So as you introduced, um, the Belt and Road Initiative um, is a huge um, you know, infrastructure project. Um, China is obviously an extremely powerful player um, in the world economy now. And the Belt and Road Initiative has been described as being a project where all roads you know, lead to and from um, Beijing. And the image overall, um, if you look at the way that the uh, BRI has played out um, in many countries, such as uh, Sri Lanka with Hambantota port, um, has been that China imposes its will, that this is kind of like a unilateral project. Um, it leads to debt problems for the countries um, involved. And of, often the projects are extremely environmentally unfriendly and they're not adapted to um, local conditions um, at all. Um, what we were seeking to do in this paper, um, based on a, a few years of research of both of us um, in Pakistan, is to question some of that narrative, because our experience has been that um, 
Pakistan has had agency in its dealings with China um, over the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of this um, BRI. And rather than simply being China imposing its will from above, what we see is the way that Pakistan's political parties um, of all persuasions um, have managed to change the way that this project has played out on the ground, um, despite the fact that you know, Pakistan is bereft of a lot of foreign direct investment from other sources. And traditionally, you would expect to see it as having a very, very weak negotiating position. But what we've, what we've seen is how China has had to change many of its priorities, um, change many of the projects, um, and adapt to these local realities, despite this power imbalance. Now, we're not saying that there aren't issues of debt, we're not saying that there aren't um, environmental impacts and uh, maybe we can talk about the issue of coal um, later on. Um, but this is, this, is, this is our main takeaway from the project, is that countries, especially when they have a very firm view of what they can achieve from the investments under the um, Belt and Road Initiative, may well have a lot more agency in negotiating with China than has traditionally been seen to be the case. Thank you, Catherine. Super uh, on the point summary of, of the paper. And I would like to dig in a little bit more uh, on this uh, main takeaway that, uh, you know, um, that uh, I also found it uh, that emerges, emerges clearly as the main uh, point of the paper. And um, that there's this challenge to the narrative that uh, China is, uh, is untwisting uh, poorer countries and basically imposing its will. Um, so, Filippo, can you please uh, uh, explain to us how, in more detail, how this negotiation and uh, take place, how Pakistan agency emerges, and um, and what logic do they follow uh, the actors that are involved in this negotiation? Absolutely, and 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 thanks, Diego, for 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 having us today to discuss about um, this paper. So, um, basically. Uh, what we did in our paper was to to dig in in depth into some of the some of the dynamics that we've seen uh, playing out as far as the negotiations between Pakistan and China is concerned. So I think we need to look at first uh, the institutional framework of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is organized around the Joint Cooperation Committee. Uh, which is the main institutional decision-making body that brings together as the main actors from the Chinese side, the National Development and Reform Commission, and on the Pakistani side, the Pakistani Ministry of Planning, Development, and Special Initiatives. Uh, the, the Joint Cooperation Committee is organized around five joint working groups, energy, infrastructure, Gwadar, economic zones, and planning. So this is the, the really the heart the beating heart of where CPEC decisions are, uh, are taken. And, and what we've seen is, for instance, Catherine was mentioning about coal at the beginning of our conversation. And, and, and this is, I think, a, a great example to demonstrate how Pakistan has agency, because um, these type of energy projects were initially prioritized by Pakistan's choice. So the majority of first phase CPEC investment, the lion's share of CPEC investment in the first phase went to the energy projects. 
Um, and, and of course, these were primarily coal power plants. And this preference for coal was coming and was in a way dictated by the Pakistani side for a number of reasons. First, um, Pakistan wanted to diversify its energy mix. Um, and second, this, this goal was this sort of, you know, the desire to invest in energy was related to uh, Nawaz Sharif's and his party's preference uh, to address the country's energy shortages as a way, as, and they saw it as a way to secure 2018 re-election. So the re-election in the 2018 um, election. So this, it was really very much dictated, as we've seen through negotiations and through the Joint Cooperation Committee meetings that we've scanned since 2013, um, it was very much part of Pakistan's desire to invest in this type of in this type of projects. Another excellent example, which we can bring and we discuss at length in the paper, is also the port of Gwadar. It's of course a strategic port for China, but it is it was very much uh, the, the project was very much started by Pakistan's desire to develop the port in the early 2000s, and it was later on rebadged as a, a BRI project when the BRI came about. So it was very much a Pakistani initiative to which China originally was also a bit reluctant, uh, and as a result of the negotiations and discussions that we've seen within the JCC. Um, there has been some adaptation as well from China to some of the requests from the Pakistani side, for instance, building some of the roads that would link Gwadar to Pakistan's main highways network. Uh, that was very much something that Pakistan wanted. And of course, it was also a combination of interests. This is not to say that it's just Pakistan that had an interest there. It's, it's clearly a combination. But I think the story that we that we that we found as we were doing research was very much more balanced than than a lot of other analysis would sort of suggest. Thank you, thank you, Filippo. And then um, moving on to another uh, of the many uh, things that I found interesting about the paper is um, the adaptive capacity that China has demonstrated to have when operating in the context of Pakistan, which is uh, uh, not an easy context to uh, operate into. Uh, the party politics uh, is um, messy, um, to, uh, to use an euphemism. Uh, there are uh, innumerable uh, bureaucratic obstacles. Uh, there are innumerable uh, interested, it's a multi-ethnic society, each uh, um, pretty much uh, with the major group, each divided into uh, different uh, institutional settings uh, under the umbrella of Pakistan federalism. So it, it is certainly wasn't easy uh, to be um, adaptive uh, in such a context. And, uh, and one of the things that you argue is that China has actually been able to adapt uh, also to Pakistani party politics, uh, which uh, I found it surprising. You could not expect them to be very used to uh, that kind of dynamics at all. Um, and this uh, remember me, um, reminded me uh, uh, a brilliant book by uh, a Singaporean actually scholar, um, Professor Ang, who teaches at the University of Michigan and who authored a brilliant book uh, titled How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. And her main argument is that China was basically able to take off economically because of the adaptability of its institution and of its governance structure. 
And the, the foundation of this adaptability was an extremely decentralized system where local actors were able to experiment and adapt and uh, had a high degree of autonomy, uh, coupled with rigid oversight from the top of the system, from the top of the party state. And so the paper made, remind me of this. And I wanted to ask if you have found something similar at play, some kind of replication of the domestic model when engaging in with uh, a foreign country. Katri. So I think that's an excellent um, point, Diego. Um, one of the things I would say about the way though that CPEC um, has operated is that as um, Filippo um, just set out, um, the decision-making structure with the uh, Joint uh, Cooperation uh, Committee um, is extremely um, centralized. And even though you've got different decision-making, you've got these bodies underneath it, for example, under um, you know, industrial cooperation and energy um, that feed into it. It's, it's quite opaque and um, certainly on field work, I found so many different versions of, you know, some people couldn't tell me how it operated. Um, other people made, um, you know, kind of said, oh no, well, of course there's loads of feed up you know, people feeding up from the grounds and all the provinces are, you know, wishes and uh, interests are taken care of. Um, so because we heard so much of this disparity, we're, we're a little bit, um, what would the word be? We're a little bit skeptical about how much is actually coming up from the ground in, in practice. Um, and certainly if you look at the, um, the projects that were adopted, what you see is that these do seem to be led a lot more by centralized um, priorities. So for example, um, you see that there's a lot of projects are allocated to the province um, of the Punjab. So Punjab does extremely well out of the first phase um, of the CPEC. And that's because um, the government in Punjab, the province, was led by um, the brother of then Prime Minister um, Nawaz Sharif, uh, Shabazz Sharif. Um, and so that you can see that although it looks like there's local autonomy going on there, you know, you have the orange metro line um, being introduced, you have lots of projects um, being implemented in Punjab. It's much more a story about um, how this is suiting um, the current central um, government. Um, and you see a lot of centralization. You see a lot of centralization with the creation of a cabinet committee on CPEC. Um, and this is something that you've seen um, even more so under the um, PTI government uh, led by um, Imran Khan um, with the creation of the, um, the CPEC authority. And this is an organization that has, um, it's led by um, a retired general. Now, in one way, you can see this as a response to China, you know, pushing to get things done, doesn't like dealing with these, you know, messy party politics um, of Pakistan. But it's also been something that's been pushed for by the military of Pakistan, and they push for it strongly under the Nawaz Sharif government um, as well. And Nawaz Sharif was, you know, strong enough to be able to push back against that 
Imran Khan is a much weaker prime minister whose power base comes from a very, very different um, source. So you can see that actually, even though there's a lot of talk about, you know, local agency feeding into it, most of the stuff that we've seen has actually been dictated in a top down way rather from coming from the bottom up. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. And you, with your answer, you actually uh, introduced um, uh, another uh, narrative that you somewhat challenge in the paper, which is exactly that, the, the role of the, the military, right? So if um, at least for um, a non-expert uh, um, ear like mine, um, it, it sounds like the military is behind every single thing that happens in Pakistan, um, and uh, that they have a veto power on virtually uh, everything that um, goes on, uh, at least in certain sectors uh, related to certain security, um, but also in the economic field. And, and in your paper, you somewhat challenge this, this narrative and you show how much more complex the role of the army is and how, again, uh, it needs to adapt to changing uh, political circumstances. Uh, and uh, I found it this surprising, to be honest, um, especially uh, given the uh, huge security implication of the CPEC uh, and, and the fact, again, that the military has uh, a stake in, uh, in virtually any sector of the economy, uh, every sector of the economy. And so I found it really interesting. So can you please, Philippe, tell us more about how the army influenced uh, or failed to influence the uh, CPEC? Thanks, Diego. That's a, that's a very good question and, and indeed a difficult one to answer. Um, what we have observed um, in the paper and by tracing basically the evolution of CPEC over the past eight years and a few years back as well, in terms of contextualizing some of these projects a bit more historically, has been that there has been an evolution. So it's a process here as well, the evolution of the role of the military that has played in the CPEC dynamics. Um, if we take a step back in the pre-BRI era, you would find um, that really the military-to-military -military dimension has been the, the, the sort of cornerstone of Sino-Pakistani relations uh, ever since they established diplomatic ties in the early 1950s. The advent of CPEC actually altered a little bit these dynamics. Um, it was a combination of political will on both sides, which uh, made CPEC happen and made Pakistan the chief enthusiast really of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and this was around 2013. Uh, and it was interesting to see that probably for one of the few times, if we look at the relationship between Pakistan and China historically, China was relatively comfortable dealing with the civilian partner, with the civilian government. Um, and, and, and I think part of the, of the reason for this, um, for the ability of the two to interact nicely together was that the, the Pakistani side was very much in favor of pushing ahead with large scale infrastructure projects. Um, and again, as Catherine was mentioning before, uh, the, the, the Joint Cooperation Committee really suited the interests and the agendas of both sides. So for, for the Pakistani side, the JCC was essentially a way to try and keep the, 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 the CPEC decision making as much as possible under civilian control. Whereas for the Chinese side was a way to keep it relatively centralized, 
and, and, and to make sure that they, they had a single point of reference in the way in which CPEC was going to be negotiated. Um, what is interesting here, and, and I think it tells us something about the adaptability of China as well, is that uh, with the disqualification of Nawaz Sharif and the advent of the PTI, there has been a return to a pre-2013, if you like, or pre-CPEC playbook uh, with greater involvement from the military than we've seen before. Uh, and Catherine already hinted at it with the, the creation of the CPEC authority. Uh, and, and this is something that was very much resisted by the PMLN government. So again, here, what we see is that um, the role of the military, which shrank, I would say, with between 2013 and 2017 slash 18, and then it grew again into uh, its, to, to a much larger size. Uh, but sort of to wrap up this, this sort of discussion, I think it's these dynamics that we've just outlined are important for three reasons. The first one is to, to understand how change in leadership in BRI countries has an impact in, on the way in which projects unfold on the ground. And this is certainly not just the case for Pakistan, but also in other contexts as well. Um, the second point is that how BRI projects are become internalized in the domestic politics of recipient countries. And, 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 and Catherine's point earlier about how some of the decisions around the CPEC authority were initially rejected by the civilian government. I think this tells us a story about how CPEC has become also a bone of contention, not just for center province relations, but also in the much wider Pakistan civil military um, framework. Um, and, and finally, uh, when last but certainly not least, one of the key points that we make in the report, so that's China's adaptability in a way to, to, to local conditions and to the different actors and agendas that you would find and that um, leadership in political leadership in uh, recipient countries uh, identify and choose to push forward. Thanks. Thanks, Filippo. And this, um, I think our time is almost um, finished, uh, but I would like to um, conclude with a question on uh, where we are and uh, where we're going. Um, the Institute of South Asian Studies is uh, partly an academic institute and partly a think tank. So um, we are interested in, uh, uh, in the future. Uh, and so in the paper you, you mentioned, and uh, Philippe also mentioned that uh, with reference to the role of the military, that the Imran Khan election uh, was, um, uh, well, if not a watershed, a significant change uh, in the implementation of the CPEC, uh, and as well as in its govern governance structure. So what change exactly can we, what implication uh, for what is to come? So the main, um, I mean, change that, that we saw was, um, I mean, Imran Khan's um, political party, the PTI, had been very critical of the CPEC before the election, primarily because most of the investments um, were going into, um, you know, the Punjab and Sindh rather than the province where they were in power, um, Khyber Pakhtunwa. Um, and when he comes to power, he's Imran Khan is a bit more careful about how he criticizes CPEC. But then you see um, his advisor um, on commerce and investment, uh, Daewoo, um, comes out and very, very strongly criticizes it. Um, 
Very notably, um, he Imran Khan is then sat on by the military and comes out the next day and says, oh, no, 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 Pakistan is very committed um, to CPEC. But what's interesting and what you then see is that the PTI realised that they, um, they can adapt CPEC um, to their political agenda. So the next phase, the second phase of CPEC, was always going to include um, the creation of special economic zones. And you see this in the uh, meetings of the JCC, you know, before the PTI come to power. But you see then that the Imran Khan government um, seeks to get, you know, kind of political rewards out of this. So you see them arguing for um, situating um, one of the special economic zones um, in a place called Rashakai rather than um, in Hatta, which was the Chinese preferred location in Khyber Pakhtunwa. And the PTI wants this for very political reasons. Um, so they managed to achieve that. But also, if you look at the narrative surrounding the CPEC, they then link it into Imran Khan's populist agenda about creating local jobs, employment opportunities um, and training. So it's it, it's adapted to suit um, you know, their political um, agenda. Where is it going to go um, from here? I mean, the vast majority of political parties and the discourse in Pakistan is so favourable to CPEC. And one of the problems that you find researching it is it's extremely difficult to get information. It's um, extremely difficult to get any critical information on it because it seemed to be this big national project. But there, there are many areas where, you know, Pakistan does have a huge opportunity. And in the case of training, bringing technology over from China, these are things that we could see develop um, a lot more um, in the next five years. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to assess what's happened to date. There's a lot claimed about, you know, CPEC will create these millions of jobs. Um, but when you actually look on the ground, it's quite hard to verify these um, statements. I think the next big area to watch is going to be that of agriculture. And that's something that, um, you know, we could have written a whole other report about, um, about the conditions of agriculture, where China is bringing over new technology, is bringing over new crops. And the question is going to be, how is this going to affect Pakistan? How is it going to affect its food security, its water security, but also those local employment opportunities and chance to actually get training um, within Pakistan? Because that's going to be absolutely crucial for Pakistan and Pakistanis to benefit from it. It can't just be in terms of GDP. Um, it's also got to be in terms of the local opportunities for Pakistanis in all the provinces of Pakistan. And that um, is a tricky issue. Usually agricultural projects uh, which are imposed from above, uh, let alone from uh, outside, um, are very likely to end up in a disaster, but let's hope for the better, that they know, um, that they know better than what uh, other donors have done in the past. So let me thank you uh, a lot, Catherine and Filippo, thanks you uh, for being here with us today. The paper, it's called um, How Pakistan and China Negotiate, is freely available on the website of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. 
And believe it or not, there is much more in it than what you have um, listened today here. You have um, listened to South Asia chat. To learn more about the work of the Institute of South Asian Studies, visit us at um, isas.nus.edu.sg. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thank you.